part of the problem with Assyrian history is that whenever Assyrians tell their own stories, people write it off. They say, oh, well, they're, they're too passionate. They're too subjective. They're nationalists. They're mm -hmm. everything under the sun. And of course, you use these terms like passion, subjectivity. Those are words that are typically words that you use when you want to shut anyone's opinion down, right? It's Odessa coming to you from Hamilton, Canada for today's episode 159 of the Assyrian Podcast. For today's episode, I had the pleasure of connecting with Dr. Sargon Donabed. Sargon is an associate professor of history at Roger Williams University. He holds a PhD in Near and Middle Eastern Studies from the University of Toronto and a master's from Canisius College in Anthrozoology Animal Studies. Those two things may seem unrelated to one another, but they're actually not, and Sargon explains why later in the episode. He also serves as one of the board of directors for the Assyrian Studies Association, whose mission is to promote the academic study of the Assyrian heritage through supporting research, teaching, and intellectual collaboration among scholars in different fields. In this episode, we discuss what I think is Sargon's really cool, unique, and enriching upbringing and how he got into academia. We also discussed his book, Reforging a Forgotten History. I think the book is not only incredibly informative, but I remember when I first read it, it was affirming of my Assyrian identity through an academic lens, which I really needed. It is the first comprehensive account to contextualize the Assyrian experience in Iraq and uses primary and secondary sources. As I mentioned earlier, we also discussed the super interesting intersection between Assyrian studies and animal studies and the importance of having an Assyrian studies association established. Sargon is so down to earth, really easy to talk to, insightful, thoughtful, and I think you'll really love what he has to say in this episode. This episode is sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Yoshanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a little bit more by checking out their website, the Oshana, that's O-U-S-H-A-N-A, partners.com. Now, without further ado, here's Sargon. Thank you so much, Dr. Sargon, for being on the podcast. Where are listeners hearing you from? Thank you for having me, Adessa. It's very nice to see you again or to hear you. I am currently just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I live, but work down in Rhode Island currently. Wonderful. Could you tell me a little bit about your upbringing? Sure. How shall I start this? My mother was born and raised in Baghdad, Iraq. Her family is originally from Urmia, and they left Urmia during the genocide. And, you know, as a child, I would hear the stories of the Raqqa Raqqa period of, of flight uh, during the genocide. And they left and came to Baqluba and after Baqluba, fled Baqluba and spent time in Baghdad. But parts of the family went all over the place. So my and mother Baqluba and Baqluba was a refugee camp. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, predominantly Assyrians in that refugee camp, although there were Armenians as well, I believe, from, from that region in Urmia, but largely Assyrian population. And 
but mixed in the sense that you had Assyrians from the Haikari region and Assyrians from Urmia. During that, the flight and the, the infighting in the region, just so, so much general violence between the major powers of the region that those Assyrians who were not participating in the fighting, even some that had to for purpose of protecting themselves, eventually found their way to this, this camp, uh, the Bakova refugee camp, and spent some time there and some spent longer than others, of course. And then others were settled in some places in, uh, in Iraq, some outside of Baghdad. My mother's immediate family ended up in, in and around Baghdad. But that's just the, you know, my mother's side. And if you go back far enough, it's fairly interesting. We've had some folks do, some members of the family do family trees. And on my grandfather's side, so we know that my, my mother's mother has connections to the villages of, as, as we would say, Juitapa and uh, Saralan were the two villages in, in Urmia. And on my grandfather's side, his family was from Tekke, although people typically call it or say Tekka Erdeshai. I know they're two distinct villages, but he's from Tekka. Now, what was interesting is apparently, if you go back a couple generations, his family originated with somebody named Jamis in Mosul or around Mosul. We don't know from the city, but apparently from the region of, of Nineveh. So we're not sure exactly where. And, you know, this is one of those things where you assume it could be within 60 miles, 70 miles, 100 miles, who knows, of that region. But it makes a lot of sense. I think people tend to forget that Assyrians moved fairly freely in those territories. You know, borders were very porous at that time, very early on. And for Assyrians, this sense of, of national borders, certainly the modern sense of national borders didn't really exist, not, not just for Assyrians, but for, for most people at that time. On my father's side, it's a bit different. My father's family all are from the town of Harput in Turkey. So my both my grandmother and grandfather were born in Harput, and my father was born in Boston. So my brother and I were, were born in the States as well, but my, my father was born in, in Boston, raised in the Boston area. We know that my grandfather came, so it's a tough one because all the, the census documents are all a little bit off and the, the naturalization documents we find to be a little bit off, but eventually settled, settled here in the 20s. So we don't know all the bits and pieces about his travels, fleeing the, 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 the Ottoman Empire at that time, or the, the, the New Republic of Turkey, what became the, the New Republic of Turkey, and exactly where they went. A lot of them ended up going to Greece for a time. My, my grandfather's family, certain members we know, spent time in, I think, in Piraeus in Greece. It was a port city, so people would go and then on their way, stop in other places and then end up in, on the east coast of the United States. But most of the Assyrians of Harput ended up in Boston and Worcester, Massachusetts. So my family came to Boston. There were some families that went to Lowell, Massachusetts, a couple other places. But predominantly, it was, it was Massachusetts and mostly Boston and Worcester. There was a whole contingent of Assyrians from Harput that also ended up going to the West Coast. And they settled in both Los Angeles and Fresno. So they're there. And I believe they're still, uh, and I don't know if they're active, but there's still an Assyrian organization that was founded by Assyrians of Harput on the West Coast in Los Angeles, but I don't know how, you know, these days, how active they are. You know, the, the generations, because there wasn't a constant influx of, of refugees from Harput, because essentially everyone that lived in Harput, not so long after the, the, the period of the genocide, First World War, it was emptied. 
And at the time that it was once it was emptied, you know, you don't have that more or less that constant immigration that would come in and sort of refresh that first wave and the second wave and things like that. And I think a lot of them, as I as I understood it, in the sense of the connections that they had to other local folks, while some of them in California in particular, because they came with a large contingent of Armenians who were also from Harput, some of them intermarried in the Armenian community, especially in Fresno, which has a very large uh, Armenian population. And so if you go to Fresno today and ask around, there are many, many families who for all intents and purposes identify as Armenian. But if you ask them, many of them have Assyrian family members or Assyrian heritage, and some still have some of the old Assyrian last names as well. But there, there are definitely a lot of families intermarriage, families that um, are families of intermarriage between Assyrians and Armenians of those first, first generation, second generation immigrants who came over. So when your grandfather fled in the 20s, I'm assuming it was because of the genocide that had happened. And so that was the main reason that he had decided to flee. So that's a, you know, that's always the funny question. And I say funny because we've had this argument in my family to try to figure out exactly when these folks have, have fled. We know some members left prior to the genocide. We know some members left during the genocide. We know some members left after the genocide in World War One. In some cases, and, and, and we say this because there are some members of the Donabed family that, again, I don't know how close they are to us, but they remained in the general area. So some of them s somehow survived and lived in the general area. And under the, the reforms, uh, the Ataturk reforms, what ends up happening is that some of them, or actually all of them, had to change their name. So the Donabeds all changed their name if there were any left in Turkey. Mm. And there still are, I think, in the general area, people that used to be or formerly known as Donabeds after the name change, name change policy uh, that still live there. So we don't know, you know, exactly. We, we do know that, of course, if anyone's read the, um, the book by Reverend Joseph Nayam, there's a, a portion of the text that talks about uh, George Cassius. And George Cassius is an Assyrian from Harput. And George tells the story of his family and the genocide. And so talks about, you know, this is the family of Dave, David Purley as well. So some, some listeners probably have heard of David Purley. And we know Asher Yusuf was killed, Professor Asher Yusuf, at this time period as well. So certainly Assyrians were were targeted. But again, in how many, how many were forced to flee? It's very, very difficult to find all that information. So as I said, some members of the family, yes, definitely. We know some fled prior to, some fled during, and some fled after. And we're not 100% sure as to when my grandfather left, but we do know that he arrived here in the 20s. And Interestingly enough, actually, his parents eventually got here as well. So in Massachusetts, my grandparents were buried here and my great grandparents on my father's side, both on the paternal side and on the maternal side. So four of them, you know, the both couples were all their the essentially their gravestones are still here in Massachusetts, obviously, since they were buried here. Wow. So your your father ends up being born in Massachusetts. How did your mother and father end up meeting? That's a it's a good question. And of course, you know, for for a lot of folks, it's kind of confusing because I mean, typically Assyrians from particular regions in the Near East, in the Middle East, when immigration occurred, and this is the same for any group of people, there are cultural ties, there are linguistic ties, and there are spatial ties, right? There are local ties. So 
folks from a particular region, like Assyrians from Tehran who immigrated to California, also immigrated at a time where a lot of Persians or Armenians were coming as well. And so sometimes they settled in a similar area, especially if they had family there. Likewise, this happened with the Assyrians uh, of Harput. And so they settled, as I said, predominantly in, in Massachusetts, some in California, but the establishment of their organizations were mostly in Massachusetts. There are a few in California, but the majority were in Massachusetts. My, my mother's side of the family, so my mother, my mother came to the United States initially in the 60s and eventually came back and settled, went back to Iraq, I should say, for a time, taught, and then came back again, I think by the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And when my mother came to the States, again, for the second time, she she had spent time in, in Flint, Michigan. She had spent a little bit of time, I think, in Philadelphia, Chicago, but her family was actually in New Britain, Connecticut. So she had an aunt in New Britain, Connecticut and cousins in New Britain, Connecticut. So she spent time in the mid to late seventies going to school in uh, going to college, the university, and then, and, and living in, in Connecticut. And so she lived in the region of New Britain and in New Britain, you had an old Assyrian church, the church of St. Thomas. So the, the parish, the Assyrian church of the East of St. Thomas. And it's interesting because the, again, the Assyrians of Harput were predominantly part of the Orthodox church. So the, what's today typically referred to as the Syriac Orthodox, although when my grandparents came to the States and they established these churches, all of the churches came under the name Assyrian Apostolic Church of Antioch. So their Assyrian identity was powerful on certainly obviously on both sides. And that was part of their heritage. And so to make a long story short, my mother and father actually met an Assyrian New Year party. So there's an Assyrian New Year party and uh, Massachusetts and, and New Britain frequently would get together and there were gr the groups would go to each other's parties and weddings, etc. And essentially that's what happened. They went to a New Year's party. And I, although I have to say, I don't remember which direction. If it was my father and the folks in Massachusetts going to New Britain or vice versa, but that's where they met. And, and eventually they got married and stayed, I think, just briefly in Connecticut and eventually moved to Massachusetts where my dad's family was. That's amazing. And for listeners that may not be so familiar with the geography of the U.S. and where Massachusetts and Connecticut are, they're on the east coast of the U.S. Yeah, I frequently have to tell people that when we have discussions about this, I find it kind of interesting it's a tough thing when you realize that American geography is not very well known, even by Americans. But yeah, frequently when I say, oh, East Coast, people go, oh, Chicago. And I say, well, no, I understand that's the large Assyrian community in the United States. And it's kind of east of California. But if you go further east, you know, New Jersey has a large population. New Britain had a, uh, still has a population, but not as perhaps not as significant as it used to be. Philadelphia once had a large Assyrian population. Yonkers, New York still has a significant Assyrian population and Massachusetts. Something you had mentioned, which was when your grandparents had come and established uh, churches, organizations that the Syriac Orthodox Church at that time was known as the Assyrian Apostolic Church of Antioch. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. I know that you and your wife, Dr. Shami Mackel, wrote a piece about the Jacobite Assyrians of Massachusetts. So if mm. you could just talk a little bit or briefly about who the Jacobite Assyrians are, what is the connection with that to kind of thread it to the Assyrian Apostolic Church of Antioch, to the Syriac Orthodox mm. Church? How did that sort of come to be? 
you know, and when you get lost in these things, when you when you deal with this on a regular basis, you tend to forget that you're babbling in jargon and people don't necessarily have any idea what you're talking about. Uh, this happens frequently in the academic world, which is, I think, why popular culture stuff sometimes resonates far more than than most other things. I mean, essentially, they're all the same. You know, when when someone says Jacobites, Jacobite Christians, and I should I should preface this by saying there's another group of Jacobites and uh, the Scottish Highlander Jacobites is a vastly different ballgame. So that's a whole different piece, which I won't go into. So there are these terms, these pejorative terms, of course, that are used for Assyrians. There's a ton of pejorative terms that have been used for Assyrians over the years. And as you have with the Assyrian Church of the East, you know, the quote unquote Nestorian Church, right? It was There was an attempt to use that term, that appellation to discredit them, to sort of poke holes in who and what they were. And, and in that sense, it was pejorative. So people called Assyrians Nestorian to link them to the Nestorian controversy. Uh, and, and again, this is very typical with, with how this works, I think, in, in, in the religious world. And it happened in Christianity throughout the early centuries, centuries of Christianity. The Jacobites just simply were another sect of Christian Assyrians who followed, as the story of course goes, that followed Jacob Baradius. At least that's where the, the, the term Jacobite comes from. They were followers of Jacob Baradius and his sense of Christology, Mariology, and et cetera, et cetera. So the, but the idea is that this term, the term Jacobite was not something, I mean, when, when I learned about it, when I was a kid, when I heard about Jacobites and, and Nestorians and Chaldeans, I thought of them as just these terms that were used for these ecclesiastical distinctions, right? The Jacobites went to that, in my mind, the Jacobites went to that church in Worcester, you know, where that I knew was the Jacobite church. The Nestorian Assyrians went to those churches, those Church of the East churches, you know, Nestorian church. So yeah, and they said things in this particular way. Okay. And the Chaldeans went to those churches. I mean, that's simply the way I understood it as a kid. And and I think it sort of stuck with me for a long time. And, you know, you see this in early literature as well. People will frequently talk about the Jacobites and the Nestorians. So, and, and, you know, and it's in a lot of Assyrian poetry. It's in Assyrian songs. So it, it definitely does stick. But the idea of, again, as I said, Jacobite is the same group, uh, is the same church that was originally in the United States called the Assyrian Apostolic Church of Antioch. Now, that church in the really by the 1950s, by the mid-1950s, although you start to see the shift over post-Samael massacre, really. So right around you know, 1932, 1933, when you get into the period of Samael, all of a sudden the churches that used to be called Assyrian Apostolic in the United States, you start to notice that there are these, a little bit of pushback in different places. And of course, in the Middle East as well, and in other countries. I mean, you see this stuff starts to get written about this, uh, in Farid Nusha's journal, um, his Assyria journal that's written in in Argentina. So this stuff is is happening all over the place. And it, it, it has these reverberating effects, right? Because the idea of the Samael massacre, and it, by the time we get to 1933, pretty much people are aware of what's going on. And Assyrians in different places in the Middle East are scared of this backlash against anyone. I mean, if you read the documents, if you read the archival sources. I mean, never mind asking Assyrians, never mind going to the Assyrian sources, which I believe are actually even more powerful because you have those primary sources of Assyrians dealing with this tragedy. But even if you want to go the Western route and look at Western archival sources, 
there's a whole discussion about it was enough to be a Syrian to be killed. So if that was the case, it's not strange that you start to see groups start to push back or to pull away from that Assyrian identity because it's tragedy, it's trauma, and you don't want to be involved in that. You want to protect your family. And what ends up happening is that you start to see these, these micro cracks and breaks in, the, in that sort of Assyrian identity that, that permeated a lot of different groups at that time. And with the, the Assyrian Apostolic Church of Antioch, with those folks, as I said, when you start to see it in the writings, uh, especially in letters that were get, coming to Farid Nusra and his Assyria journal, and when you see this stuff coming up in articles in the New Assyria that's in, being written in the United States, or in some of the other periodicals that are being written by the Assyrian community of Harput, you start to notice that this is a big deal. And there's a, there's a reverberation. By the 1950s, churches had started changing their names. And, and in the in-between, in the interim period, from 1933 to 1952-53, a lot of the churches went through an initial shift. And the initial shift was from Assyrian Apostolic Church of Antioch to Assyrian Orthodox Church, or Church of Antioch. And then by the time you get to the 50s, as I said, 52-53, by the time you're at the the late 50s, early 60s, a lot of the churches have shifted to Syrian Orthodox Church of Antioch. And, you know, again, if you study this period of, of, um, of Assyrian history in the United States, there are documents that are going out from the Archbishop Yeshu Samuel, who's in uh, New Jersey in the United States. He's sending out one letter to some people with one particular letterhead on it that says Syrian, Orthodox, and then he's sending another letterhead at the same time to another parish who he knows people are very staunchly Assyrian, and the the the, the letterhead says Assyrian Orthodox. Mm. So you have this happening at the same time. I mean, you have this guy calling his people Assyrian, and then a year later saying, "No, we've never been Assyrian. Now we're Syrian." And so by the time you get to, you know, the late nineteen nineties, most of the churches had been shifted to Syrian Orthodox. And in fact, the last few, the last few that were left were, and one of them's still there. So the, the Virgin Mary Church in Paramus, New Jersey still exists as Assyrian. It's still called the Assyrian Orthodox Church. The other one that had lasted until the late 90s was the Church of My Grandparents. So St. Mary's Assyrian Orthodox Church of Worcester, Massachusetts. And eventually they had moved to Shrewsbury, which is not too far from Worcester. They sold the original church in Worcester and moved to Shrewsbury, Massachusetts couple miles within, I don't know, 15, 20 miles, I think. And for years, I, I remember going to that church as a teenager and, you know, we'd go for, we'd take classical Assyrian lessons, right? We'd learn like Ktobonoyo, the book language. And, and I remember going with my dad and at one point I started to notice that the, the first A and the S on the Assyrian just happened to be missing at some point. And, you know, for a week, two weeks, a month, two months went by. And I remember saying, like, can somebody put those back up? <laughs> Are they ever going to go back up? And we always, you know, to this day, we wonder, was that sort of the beginning? Did somebody chip those off? Did somebody who was anti-Assyrian within the parish, had they already removed that because they knew what was coming down the road? And, you know, by the late 90s, that had shifted to Syrian. And then post-2000, because of this whole census discussion, which happened in 99-2000, in there was this big thing about Syriac on the census 2000, 
And the hope was that, you know, people would, Assyrians would not identify with their, with their country of origin, but rather their ethnic identity, ethnocultural identity as Assyrians. And, you know, there were a lot of folks who would say Syrian because of Syrian Orthodox being from the Syrian Orthodox Church. And that was problematic because that would go under a different category and that wouldn't be counted with the Assyrian category. And so the idea was that Syriac was distinct. And so there was that sort of created category, Assyrian Chaldean and Syriac census 2000 category. And there was that hope that if, or at least I should say some folks had that hope that folks would connect with the Syriac name. And so they would write down Syriac rather than Syrian. And so then you start to see all the churches shifting. And slowly but surely, as far as I know, I mean, it, there might be one or two that still remain, but I, I don't quote me on that. The majority have shifted now to Syriac. So you can see it's a slow process and it occurred over really about 80, 90 some odd years, you know, from Assyrian apostolic in English again. I mean, we're talking about the terms in English to this later term to today where you get Syriac Orthodox. I, I have to say the one funny thing about it, for those of those who are familiar with these, how these terms work, the the church when it was first built the church actually read in assyrian the, the church said uh, the the assyrian the script on it said eto so you know eta etod morth mariam so the church of saint mary etod morth mariam what was interesting is i think when they redid the church when it became syrian and they changed at least the church in Worcester, I'm speaking about specifically, that eventually went to Shrewsbury. When they changed the lettering and they changed the you know the website and everything, the Assyrian shifted as well, and so it became Aitod Yoldath Aloho. So it's interesting because they went with the theological connection, which is the church of Yoldath Aloho is bearer of God, right? Yeldath Alaha would be would be the term in the Eastern dialect. Easterners aren't typically used to saying that, Eastern Assyrians, they're used to say in the longer sort of uh, theological arguments, the bearer of Christ makes more sense to most Eastern Assyrians rather than the bearer of God, which is something you hear typically in the more, and I say Orthodox profession, like the Theotokos in Greek, which is again, the same thing, Christ, uh, the God bearer rather than Christ, Christotokos would be Christ bearer, Theotokos is the, the God bearer. And that's the word for Mary, Mary, you know, St. Mary is is the the god bearer the theotokos and you know holy mary mother of god as you hear in the catholic church so it's really interesting because i found it fascinating that the church went from saint mary's assyrian apostolic church of antioch to the church of the the bearer of god right the so it's just it was it's just interesting how how terms and appellations shift and they change and Sometimes they're reflective of new ideas, sometimes old ideas, sometimes political ideas, even on the church, uh, even on the churches. So, um, I mean, that's sort of like the general, I guess, history of what happened in the United States. And some of the churches, you know, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, the church in New Jersey, as I said, is really the, the last one that's left that has the Assyrian Appalachian still on it. It's, uh, it's it's crazy to me that this has happened just within a very short lifespan and something that you have directly witnessed from the beginning when you used to go and it having been a certain name and then transitioning later on. I don't want to get into this too much, but I ha had that because we see this so much with, um, with the other sects as well, had that had an effect on 
the the churchgoers there and oh uh, yeah a dent on or a bruise really on um their faith or their faith in the church i guess well you know odessa it's the way i think about it and it's it's tough to explain because of course i was in college at the time so I, i think back to being in college where young folks are searching for their who they are and expressing yeah. who they are and um and i know that for me you know for for my brother and i it, our life was kind of funny in a sense that our assyrian life was you know we had we had our massachusetts sort of typically american life and and on the west coast we'd go visit our family particularly in california we'd have a little bit more of this sort of assyrian life and it was very divided not that we weren't assyrian on the east coast as well we were but it definitely felt distinct right it felt like there i i was i was an assyrian and i was with my family and my my assyrian family and you know on the east coast i just sort of was part of my you know american life and um it's kind of tough to explain but i i remember being in college when all this was occurring and i remember just i think sort of spiritually and and mentally like psychologically what it meant or what it did to me and i mean i was just full of anger i was full of just an immense amount of frustration and anger that this was happening and i remember i wrote my senior thesis as an undergraduate my senior history thesis as an undergraduate on the changing name of the assyrian people and church or something along those lines and it was it it was all based in my in my frustration and my anger was to sort of document who assyrians were and that this stuff was happening and i remember going through a period of feeling you know fairly religious and spiritual as as a young person even in college and then losing a good chunk of that because of what happened with the church and i i mean i i felt not just distant from it i, I was pissed i was angry i was frustrated and i saw you know my 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 father i saw my father go through that and typically you don't think that your your parents or older folks are having go- these difficult emotions that they're dealing with but i remember going to a meeting uh for all the people who were angry about what happened sort of the old time harput assyrians from from the old wister church and meeting all these families and the descendants of these families in a hall one day when we were talking about what what do we do what can we how do we react to this because i say this because there was a whole group of people from the church in wister that were fine with the change they were okay with it so i should say that there were you know there were subsequent periods of immigration of assyrians but the after the assyrians from harput came you had a period in the 60s where some assyrians from torabdin came there was a, some families from the torabdin region in turkey there were some people from qamishli in syria who came and then there were other groups of folks coming from aleppo from damascus from a few other places in syria a few folks from lebanon from beirut and, and elsewhere and then of course you had a bunch of families also that came from iraq but these were the you know the syrian orthodox iraqis right at that time so you know you had all these these families coming in and you got to remember by the 1960s and 70s a lot of people in these middle eastern contexts especially in in the countries that are predominantly arab countries they had been living in an education system some in a political system where you had constant burgeoning nationalism from one side or another right so the sense of iraqi or syrian arab identity was very powerful it's more or less the same in in lebanon 
in Turkey, the Turkish identity was very powerful and, and, and gaining more strength, right? Especially after the reforms in the 20s. And so you have these people who had, for lack of a better term, had been sort of indoctrinated in these newer systems, right? And these newer nation state systems. And so their sense of identity of being, especially of being Assyrian, the way the Harputlis were, or the early Assyrians from Urmi or Haikari, or even Turabdin, the ones who came to the United States at the turn of the century prior to World War One, during or just after, there wasn't that period of, of education that could you know, sort of shape their minds in a particular way. Because we tend to forget that the education system in a country shapes your mind. It tells you how to think, how to believe, how to act. I mean, that's, you know, that's why we send our kids to school. You know, here, go to school. It's important. You need to learn things. Well, the learning of those things leaves a lasting impact on folks. And if you teach people that they are this or they are not that, those things stay with them. And so you had a bunch of people who did not have that sense of Assyrian identity. They simply didn't. And, and there was politics involved and there was, I'm sure there was money involved in a lot of these cases. And, and at the end of the day, there was power, right? It's a power struggle. Who gets to stay close to the bishop? Who gets to have the power in the church? I remember being at those meetings and some of these folks who were at the time in their 60s, 70s and 80s, many have passed on now. This was in the 90s. The anger, the sadness was just palpable in that room. And you felt it from these people because how could you tell them that so much of who and what they were all their life not only was not true. I mean, they, they basically told them, well, it doesn't matter what you say you are because that's not what you are. And it was coming from a place that they found solace in the sense of a spiritual home, right? This was this was their church. This was part of their identity. This was part of their their makeup, their mind, body, spirit connection. And to have that come from that spiritual entity, they saw that you know this the home of their their sort of spiritual entity. I think was extremely painful. I mean, as I said, I mean it was painful to me. I probably didn't understand what I was feeling, except that I knew I had a lot of frustration and anger. But I can't even imagine what it must have felt like to somebody who gave their entire life to helping the community and, and starting all these organizations and passing this sense of, of care for this community onto a, a next generation to have it all ripped out from under them, right? And, and to a point where it actually became contentious, right? That if you said Assyrian, sometimes people would laugh. You know, I, I remember being in the church one time where uh, one of the, the older deacons from Harput was singing. And he used to get cut off by some of the other deacons who were not, uh, you know, th this man was actually born in the United States and he would get cut off by some of the other folks. And in fact, actually, most of the time they wouldn't let him sing. You know, he would be reg regulated to having one or two lines, you know, as a deacon in the church rather than having as much as the other folks. And they kind of joked and laughed and stuff. Uh, and, and yet he was a lovely, kind, intelligent, caring man who loved his people and his culture and his heritage and his church. And he gave a lot to it. And so to see that kind of happening within the community, right? Like this is all internal was really, really difficult. I think it was, as I said, tough for me, but I'm only, I, I'm almost next to positive that it was happening in families all over and, and, and it creating a sense of apathy. And I think that was, if you internalize that frustration so long, it becomes apathy because you see it as or you start to view it as I, I put such time and effort into this, and this is what they, this is how I'm thanked for it, and this is this is what I see come out of it. So I, I should add something funny though. In when they started to change the names of the churches, especially the one in New Jersey, when 
when the bishop in New Jersey began changing a lot of the names of the churches and started using the term Syrian Orthodox and really pushed back against Assyrian identity, a bunch of Assyrians of Harput and I think a few Assyrians of Diyarbakir, although I'm not 100% on that one, but there were members even of my family who, when Mar Shamun, Mar Isha Shamun of the Assyrian Church of the East, and this was prior to the Assyrian Church of the East taking on the name Assyrian. So it's still called the mm -hmm. Church of the East. So in the 60s, That's 70, it, yeah. early 70s, mm -hmm. they asked Marshamun to become members of the Church of the East. And the reason that they asked Marishai Shamun to do that was because they felt that at least with them, these were other Assyrians. It's a different church, yet so it was a bit distinct from what they were used to and the dialect that was spoken in the church, the pronunciation was distinct. But to some of these folks, they simply wanted to be in a place where they were Assyrian. And they knew that at least with Marishai Shimun and with the people of that church, they were fine as Assyrians. And so in fact, actually some fully converted. And so there was a second generation of Harput Assyrians. Some were even baptized in the Church of the East in New Britain because they did not want to give any more power to the, the bishop, the uh, Mar'ishu Samuel, who was the bishop in New Jersey at the time. So it's really interesting how they, they sort of found ways around it, right? To continue to say, well, this is how I'm going to push back. This is how I'm going to be Assyrian. This is what I'm going to do. But you can definitely see that it was difficult. And, you know, there's definitely, there's also a distinction in there were a bunch of intermarriages when my parents, and even before my parents, there were a lot of intermarriages between the communities and they saw it as marriages between Assyrians. There are far fewer today. And in fact, actually, the Massachusetts community and the community in New Britain really don't have any connection anymore. At least the church communities don't. There are still Assyrians in Massachusetts who, you know, participate with the Assyrians in New Jersey, but most of those Assyrians do not go to that church anymore because it's become very powerfully anti-Assyrian in that sense. So yeah. that's become unfortunate. Yeah, it's alarming how, in, again, in such a short period of time, and even with younger people that are attending the church may not even know the history of what had happened before. So they only know what they know moving forward. Um, and so mm -hmm. it's interesting how that peace can be so easily erased in such a short period of time. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about your path to academia? <laughs> Some of it probably started in that anger, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably a good portion of it started there. I, I, I hope that not all of it was there. Certainly a bunch of it was just simply trying to find out the truth, find out, you know, I think a lot of people who are drawn to academia want to sort of tell, tell the, tell a story, right? Tell a good story, tell a, a more correct story and to help the world in a particular way. And, you know, to be drawn to academia, I, I wouldn't say I was like drawn to academia, but I, I was always interested in teaching. I loved teaching as a, as a, as a young person, as soon as I graduated from college, I started doing some substitute work, supply teaching in Canada, and I enjoyed it. It was a little tough. It was frustrating at times. I, I did some work within the special ed department, special education, very challenging work. And, and my heart goes out to all the people in education in general, and in particular, special education. It's, a, it's very painstaking and very compassionate work. People that are there usually are there because they, they love what they do and they certainly want to make a change. And, you know, I enjoyed that. My mother has always been teaching since I was a kid and been substituting in the school system when I was you know, a young student in, in our hometown. And so what was 
I think the draw to me was that I could get, if I, you know, if I went the academic path, I, I might be able to learn some really great things and be able to offer some pretty cool stories, some wonderful narratives that might be able to sort of re-enchant people's ideas about Assyrians, including Assyrians themselves. And maybe find some secret hidden knowledge. I guess as a kid, I always was hoping that I was kind of like Indiana Jones and I'd get to go to some random place and open, lift a stone somewhere in, in some ancient ruin and you'd find like the lost book of all knowledge or something, you know, like <laughs> the book of peace and wisdom is what I was hoping right. to find, I think, something like that as a kid. There it is. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there was a part of me that was like, oh, I could be, I, I could totally live the rest of my life meditating in a monastery or, you know, I, I had these ideas, these grandiose ideas of being like a stylite, you know, those guys who would sit on columns in the middle of the desert and just meditate and pray for, I don't know, days, weeks, months on end. So I did my undergraduate degree history and religious studies. That seemed like a normal path to me. I don't know why. I also did a bunch of stuff in environmental science because I was interested in it. When you were applying to university, did you go in with the idea that that's what you were going to study or later on through the courses that you had taken, did you then declare or change your major? Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, I think I went in undecided if I'm remembering correctly, I'm pretty sure I went in undecided. I only applied to three undergraduate institutions and they were all in Massachusetts because I, I don't know how everyone else feels, but as a kid, I thought to myself, okay, you just, you live your life and you live your life and here's a year and you go to school and then the summer comes and you get to go do some cool travels and see family. And there's these awesome things called holidays where you spend with family and friends and your loved ones and life is cool. And then you get to, and it's, it's not monotonous. It made a lot of sense to me because I had a very wonderful childhood and I got to a place, I think when, you know, when you're a senior in high school and, you, and then you go, okay, I'm graduating. What do I do now? And people go, you go to college and you go college oh crap, well, what about my friends? Well, they go to college too, but they typically go to different places. And you go, what? And you know, then you're thrown through this weird, surreal place of, I don't know how every, again, how everyone else felt, but I kind of enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed like, and don't get me wrong, there were really rough parts of middle school and high school and, you know, fitting in and everyone goes through that sort of angsty period. And it's tough being the only kid who's an Assyrian and no one knows what the hell an Assyrian is except for you and your brother. So there was definitely that. And you definitely felt distinct. I mean, I definitely felt different. But I knew I had a, a larger Assyrian community and, you know, I had wonderful friends from all walks of life. And so it wasn't really an issue. But, you know, when you get to become, when you get to the, period, the point where you're a senior and then folks start taking their SATs and they apply to schools, I didn't really think much about it. I just applied to three schools that I had kind of heard of. And I went, oh, yeah. Hey, you guys applying to those schools? Yeah, we're applying to those schools. All right, cool, whatever. Let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got into the three schools and I said, well, what do I do? All right, I got to choose one of these schools. And I went and I chose and I realized I went over and I spent a night at the school that became my undergraduate. And I remember feeling so stressed and anxious while I was there. I just remember not being comfortable at all in that dorm, not with the person I was with. I couldn't tell you who that person was. I know they went out and kind of hung out somewhere at night and partied or something. I don't know what it was, but I just remember feeling that everything was just a bit odd about the whole thing and I wasn't comfortable. And so I decided actually to stay at home, to live at home. And I worked 20 hours a week as I was going through school. And so I would commute 
about 20 minutes to school. I made some great friends and actually some of my best friends that I made are still good friends of mine today. And actually the majority of those friends are my professors. So I had some of the most wonderful professors predominantly in the religious studies department and uh, helped me a tremendous amount as a young person. And, and as I said, just as a, as a human being, wonderful people to speak to, to confide in and taught me a lot, taught me a lot and still teach me a lot to this, to this day. So Tom Clark and was my senior supervisor for my, my history thesis, but he was also in the religious studies department. And then I had these, you know, wonderful other professors, Chet Ramo for my science courses and my naturalist courses and just wonderful people all around. And then, you know, the religious studies department specifically thinking of Mary Joan Leith and Greg Shaw and to this day, you know, and still John Lancey and Arka Schlunson, they're still, some of these folks are, I still see, you know, which is wonderful. What was interesting was a, a handful of them actually also were graduates of uh, or uh, were students at Harvard at a time. So either they went to Harvard as divinity students or as graduate students. And so I had this real interest in stuff that was happening at Harvard. And I think that sort of ignited my interest in, in higher learning. I realized that Harvard had all these great opportunities. I was probably one of the handful of people that was really interested in folklore and mythology. And to, you know, to know that there's a university that offers that as a major, I'm sure a lot of parents are thinking right now, please don't tell my kid that, but <laughs> hey, welcome to the world of COVID where you don't know what's gonna work these days. You have no idea. So I always think that anything is wonderful. And the whole idea of mythology and folklore, I also think we've sort of mistakenly done away with a lot of our myths, which we, we really need as human beings. But so then I graduated from Stonehill and after I graduated from Stonehill, I went to, I spent a, a year or so in a, at a Greek Orthodox seminary studying languages. So I, I was doing substitute teaching and I, at the time met really one of my, my best friends to this day, Father Greg Christakos, he and I were studying at the same time at Hellenic Holy Cross in Brookline, Massachusetts. And we, we strangely met in a class called Biblical Hebrew for the Pulpit. I, I mean, I wasn't going to the pulpit. Kind of knew I wasn't going to be a priest, but I wanted to take all these language courses for some strange reason. And so I was taking classical Syriac because they offered it with Father Eugene Pentiak, who studied all the great uh, languages, the lesser known languages that a lot of folks weren't studying. And he was teaching all those classes. So I thought, this is great. And then he was also teaching this biblical Hebrew class. And so, you know, I'm sitting down one day and I look to my right and this guy looks at me and he goes, Sargon, right? That's Assyrian. And I said, yeah, how'd you know that? And so, you know, it was just one of these weird things where then we become close friends and to this very day we're you quite feel close seen. best friends. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was, a, <laughs> you know, and, you know, there was a connection because his father had known Assyrians and helped an Assyrian, I think, leave someplace in the Middle East, I think Iran at the time. And so there was this, really cool connection there. And I felt, well, it was, it was a sense of feeling seen and, and accepted and a part of something bigger, I think, right? Like you didn't feel like you had to spend 20 minutes explaining that, which then at the end of the day, isn't going to go anywhere. Cause you're going to say, all right, see you later. Goodbye. But you know, this was something that it just wasn't, it was a nice feeling. So uh, Father Greg and I are still quite close friends. So I spent some time there and then, and as I was doing my substitute teaching and stuff, I just realized I did not want to deal with the teaching that I was doing at the high school level. And I was teaching a couple, I had done one-on-one -on -one work with um, students in special education in two different classes, teaching another special education class. And there was a sort of long, windy road about it, which I won't go into, but I realized, ah, oh, there's too much red tape here. 
I'm going to go to academia as if there was less red tape in academia, right? <laughs> the, there was less nonsense in academia. Boy, was I wrong about that. But I think the interesting thing was that once I was there, I had these extra courses behind me. And so I had been doing all these other things with some friends of mine, some uh, Assyrian friends of mine, where I would go to these conferences and was doing all these things where I was learning a bit more about what was happening in the greater Assyrian academic world. And I was introduced to Professor Amir Harak at some point through my friend Firas Jetu. And I remember thinking, oh, I can go and get a graduate degree in something that is Assyrian. So I applied to a bunch of schools and I got into the University of Toronto with Dr. Harak as my supervisor. And so I started getting a master's. So I started working on a master's degree and then moved from that master's into a PhD the, the following year. It was a one-year master's into a PhD program. And uh, I stayed at the Department of Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations and I finished my I finished my thesis. I left Toronto after about seven years in Toronto in 2009. And then in 2000 and end of 2009, I, I defended my thesis. And in 2010, I was given my degree. And at that point, I had already got a job. I, I got my job, my full-time job at Roger Williams University uh, while I was still ABD. So all but dissertation. And I was lucky enough to get that full-time job. It probably helped that I had a quick stint for teaching two religious studies courses at my my alma mater at Stonehill, which is the small uh, liberal arts school that I went to as an undergrad. And I think having those courses really helped out a lot. And I was getting my PhD and they hired me as the Middle Eastern historian. So I've been there, this is 12 years now, I think that I've been at Roger Williams. Wow. Would you say that your experience of going to University of Toronto and Professor Harak, seeing Professor Harak's work and what he teaches, that it inspired you the possibility to be able to do research and get to teach about Middle Eastern cultures, including Assyrians? Absolutely. So Dr. Harak was, I mean, of course, instrumental in my, in my training as my supervisor. And he was my mentor and guide, you know, through this academic process. And I had some wonderful professors at the university. You know, I, I studied with really wonderful folks, uh, a, a few, uh, unfortunately, uh, Brian Peckham and Doug Frain are no longer with us. Both of them have passed on, but they were phenomenal professors. I studied Akkadian with, with Doug, and I studied Ugaritic and Phoenician with Brian. Had some great, great memories of just, you know, spending time speaking about some of these very obscure esoteric topics with them and met some wonderful people in, in my graduate school days. And I, I have to say, you know, all in all, if you take a step back and you, you walk through your graduate years, at least for me, you know, the graduate studies were, of course, extremely important, but none of it would have been possible without the people around me. I, I just, I would, I don't know if this is a sort of a little moment of wisdom that I've gained over the years. And if I can impart it to anyone out there, you know, people always say, oh, congratulations, you wrote a dissertation, you did this, you did that. And I always think to myself, oh man, if it wasn't for, you know, for Shemi's support, if it wasn't for my parents' support, my brother's support, my friend's support, my professors, Anna and Manny, who became my, my family and the kids in Toronto. I mean, I, I had a wonderful support system around me while I was doing a pretty stressful and difficult task. I mean, when I went into writing my dissertation, I didn't know what I was going to write. You know, as a young graduate student, I tried different things. I, I, I thought I might go to the field and do archaeology. I thought I might do, you know, modern linguistic stuff, philological stuff. And I ended up doing 
I mean, essentially the destruction of Assyrian heritage and demography in Iraq in the 20th century, which is a really difficult topic. It's a very sad topic to deal with. And I didn't realize how much it was affecting me as I was doing it. So to have that really powerful support system was extremely, it was necessary. And if, if it wasn't for my cats, Cheeks and Ghost, I wouldn't have written a dissertation if it wasn't for, mm. so, you know, I always sort of as a, in a longer connection to all of this, I, I, it just reminds me how important we are as social creatures, as social beings, right? My uncle Wilson used to always say, you know, that you, you need people around you, especially while you're doing something like this. People always say that I did this and I did that. And I accomplished this, this and I accomplished it. Yeah, I did, but I, I'm not a, I'm, I'm one of, of a deeper connected, you know, intricate web. So I'm thankful to all of them. And I still thank you all, you know, to this day for helping me with all of that, because that was extremely important, I think. And, and anyone going into graduate studies, I think, knows, you know, folks that are there that have done it, they know that. And, and if you're doing it, I think it's important to remind yourself that you're going, you know, you're doing a lot of work where you're constantly sitting up in your head and, you know, Dr. Harak's supervision was, was wonderful, you know, and, and, and he kept me on task and focused. And I think at the end of the day, the nice thing was that if you put all those pieces together of everything that occurred while I was in, in Toronto in the sense of my academic career, but my life, it allowed me to accomplish what I accomplished. And I'm very thankful for that. But, you know, if you asked me at the beginning of doing the PhD, what was I thinking of doing when I graduated? I had no idea. No, I had no concept of it at all. You know, I guess I had some vague idea that I would teach, but I remember even getting the offer for the job at Roger Williams. And I called, you know, I called a couple of friends and I said, I called a couple of my former professors at Stonehill and I said, I just got this job offer. What do I do? I didn't know what to do. I was like, is this the next thing in my life? Is this what I'm supposed to do? What am I supposed to do right now? Because I was just kind of going through school at this point and working odd jobs. Now you do. Is this what you do? You get this full time job. You know, so the, se the sense of, of wondering what, what do you do next? What path am I supposed to be on is always interesting to think about. Uh, thanks for being real with sharing that, because I think sometimes I myself, you know, see people in, in positions such as yourself and you're like, oh, my gosh, this person has had everything sort of figured out for them. And it always just made oh. sense for them. And you Hell don't no. realize <laughs> that they are just as much as any of us are, which is just trying to figure it out as you're going. And so, you know, I think uh, I thank you for sharing that. Oh, absolutely. That and I, I think it's so important to remember that, too. I think you're right. I mean, it's important for me to remember that because sometimes I think if sometimes I look back at it and if I'm not being reflective enough, sometimes I think, oh, well, how come I just did that back then? And then I tend to forget, oh, no, hold on a second. When you piece those pieces together, you start to realize, oh, no, there was a whole bunch of other stuff going on or there, somebody was supporting me or, or, you know, and, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, you know, I tell my students this all the time. I'm like, the, the best advice I ever got, I think, was from a great math teacher I had in high school, um, Arvid Olin. And Mr. Rowland said the, the most interesting people he knows in his life, and this was, you know, God, I graduated high school in 96. So the most interesting people he knows in his life are people who are adults in their 50s and 60s and still don't know what they want to be when they grow up. Mm. And I always thought to myself that that was such a wonderful way of looking at things. And it's very difficult for today's day and age because, you know, when I feel like I don't have something settled, 
I feel stressed and, 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 and unsettled and anxious about that because I think that's the society we've, you know, especially our Western society has sort of created, right? The sense of you must know, you must do this, and that is who you are and what you are. But that's not true. That, that I, I don't believe that's true. I don't think it's true for me. And I think there are a variety of things that make us who and what we are. And I think it's important to, to find those pieces and to, to be open, you know? And it's hard for me too. I think that all the time. It's hard for me to sometimes just be like, it's okay. Yeah, you're finding out you may not want to do this. I mean, hell, we're living through the period where everyone's like, I don't want to do this job anymore. And they're quitting jobs. So it's interesting. What has your experience been being in a Syrian uh, in the field? Because I, I felt like so much of my, whether it had been with my undergraduate experience and taking courses, um, I almost minored in Middle Eastern studies. So a lot of my courses were kind of around that realm. And so a lot of times I was still in classes where Assyrians were talked about as a thing of the past or trying to like legitimize that part of my identity. And so I guess my question to you is what has it been like been being an Assyrian in in that realm? Well, that's a tough question and a, a great question, tough question, because it elicits all sorts of thoughts and feelings about that. I'm trying to think back far enough. As I said, when I sort of first wanted to work on Assyrians, I, what I was trying to do, at least in my mind, what I was trying to do was sort of write a historical wrong in my mind. And I felt that there was a lot of negative press about Assyrians and there was a lot of no press about Assyrians anywhere, not just in the academic world, but in a lot of different places. And especially when I started in the academic pursuit, a lot of the stuff that you saw was very negative. You know, it's funny, people will try to say, well, turn on your objective academic lens. And I say, that's, that's silly, that's silly. Everyone that goes to academia goes and gets a PhD, people that do most things in life, but certainly, you know, the academic pursuit, everybody has a reason for why they're there. There's, there's not, I, I, I think very few people I know are like, oh, I have no attachment to this whatsoever. I mean, that sort of sense of, complete detachment from what you're doing? I don't think so. I think most people have some kind of a passion for what they're doing in the academic world. And there's a re so there's a reason, right? I mean, heck, for some people, it's I met so-and-so who became my significant other, and it got me interested in this. For some people, it's I traveled to this particular country, and I was so enthralled by their culture that I started doing this. I dug deep enough in my past and I realized that, oh, there was something there that I wanted to learn more about. And so I, you know, I went into this pursuit. So I think there are a variety of reasons for why people do it, why they, they go into the academic world. For me, as I said, I mean, part of it was frustration. Part of it was anger. Part of it was this hope that I could write a better story that would, first of all, that would bring Assyrians to light. First and foremost, a story about Assyrians, which I felt that there were very few. And then also to put Assyrians in a particular light that said, hey, these people matter. They have significance, they have meaning, they have lives, and they are important. This culture, this history, this community matters. And it, it, it has something to offer the world and it's unfair that it is treated in the way it is at times. And so I thought that what I would do would be to sort of, at least part of what I was doing was to, was to write a historical wrong. And 
you know, I started to realize, <laughs> what do they say? You, you go into it thinking that, and then you, you realize you just kind of want to survive while <laughs> you're doing it. And I remember reading Linda Tuhewi Smith's decolonizing methodologies years ago for the first time. And I remember being struck by this one segment in, in one of her beginning chapters. I think it's in chapter, in chapter one, she asked this question, is history in its modernist construct important to indigenous peoples? Like, does it matter? And she says very quickly, no. Because no matter how many times you write or you think you're writing the truth to write to write the wrong, you know, one tale of the, the truth or one story is not going to eliminate all the other things that were out there. And and that was frustrating. That was frustrating to me to read that because even when I finished my dissertation and then I published my book, I thought to myself, well, I did it. I'm done. Okay, good. I mean, it was very anticlimactic, to be honest, as well because you spend so much time doing something and then you realize mm. that's it, it's done. But once I finished with it, I thought, okay, well, this should shed light on the situation. Mm -hmm. And there were still just as many questions. In fact, you know, somebody reviewed my book and, and did the exact thing that I kind of said that they would do in the book, which was, I said, you know, part of the problem with Assyrian history is that whenever Assyrians tell their own stories, People write it off. They say, oh, well, they're, they're too passionate. They're too subjective. They're nationalists. They're mm -hmm. everything under the sun. And of course, you use these terms like passion, subjectivity. Those are words that are typically words that you use when you want to shut anyone's opinion down, right? You say, oh, it's, it's opinion. It's not fact. And so you see this typically in the academic world. You see it in the science world. It's stuff that's labeled against women all the time, right? Women are more uh, emotional and, and so therefore not as objective. And you start to notice that there are certain phrases and terms and things that are used. And to say things like Assyrians are more nationalistic. And of course, I was taken aback by that. What do you mean by that? Nationalistic as in the sense of, you know, the Third Reich, Nazi Germany? I... I'm a little confused here. What are you talking about? Nationalistic in the sense of people taking up arms and, and, and fighting and killing people for their land. I said, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but can someone simply just be an Assyrian and love and care for their culture as they love and care of other people and other cultures and communities as well? But can they also care for theirs without being considered or labeled one of these sort of negative terms? And I, I realized that, you know, these terms were thrown out there because they shut down the conversation. And so scholars will sometimes use these terms and say, oh, it reads like a, from, from the review of my book, it reads like a nationalist polemic. And, you know, in my book, I said, <laughs> I actually said that, you know, every time Assyrians write their history, they're dismissed as being nationalists or as not being academic enough or whatever the issue is, it's written off. And so every time people say, well, why aren't Assyrians doing their own stuff? Why aren't they doing their own writing about their own culture and their own history? Well, it's that sort of same issue that pops up. And that's why that decolonizing methodologies text was so important to me was I realized Assyrians weren't alone. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just Assyrians who were feeling like that. This is something that indigenous peoples around the world feel and have felt for a long time. And typically for indigenous peoples, Indigenous peoples in the sense of westernly colonized, if you want to think of it that way, indigenous peoples. That was a major issue because of the Western powers and how the academic world is set up within the Western model. 
you know, for Assyrians, it's kind of almost twofold in a sense, because it's, it's not just the way the sort of the Western academic model is set up and how that treats Assyrians. That's part of it. But it's also the Eastern academic model, because the Assyrians are really, in a sense, like the, as one scholar wrote to me in an email that I was talking about the Assyrians and, and the scholar said uh, in this particular paper I had written, you're talking about the, you know, fourth, what did he say, something along the lines of third world of the third world or fourth world of the third world in the sense that you have Assyrians dealing with all sorts of levels of power structures that they're, ha that they're encountering and having to butt their heads up against, right? So whether it's being in the East, in these Eastern systems where Assyrians are not considered an, a distinct eth ethnic group, ethnocultural group. In, in, in most Middle Eastern countries, they're not. And then they come to the West or even in Western institutions, you try to do some of the stuff and you're accused of being too passionate or too subjective. And again, this is not, a, this is not an Assyrian thing, but this is something that you see across the board with a lot of groups who have been marginalized, historically marginalized groups. It's the same type of stuff that was thrown at folks. And, and I did I hear it? Yes. Do I still hear it? Absolutely. But the one thing I did realize was that it's frustrating and it's wonderful to sit and talk to people about this because you really need somebody to talk to about this. Otherwise, it, it starts to eat you up a little bit. But what's nice about talking to people about this and talking to, to friends and to colleagues is sometimes, as I said, you recognize that it's not just you. It's not mm -hmm. just the community of Assyrians, but something that a lot of communities face. And I think what's important about that is, is one, that you realize that there's an interconnectivity discussion that needs to be had. There's a, a much larger piece that we are part of something much bigger and, and there are a lot of things need to be fixed like that. But hell, if it doesn't fix the problem, it doesn't mean I shouldn't have written the book. And I think that took me a while to recognize that if one person is interested, if one person says, wow, I had no idea, or thank you for writing about my village that was destroyed and I remember it as a child. Thank you for doing that. Even if someone says, I can't stand what you wrote, it you know, something, some sort of a response that that meant that it was meaningful in some way, it doesn't matter how obscure, but especially those positive responses, a hundred negative academic reviews would not bother me if I had one or two of those. And I think that's what makes it worthwhile. And that's what I sort of always connected to is that you are making a difference, right? You're making us, even if it's small and it's not always something you see on a grand scale, I mean, life is like that, right? There are a lot of small things that that add together to make the larger differences. So I think it's it's important to recognize that and anyone going into the field that, you know, you are going to face setbacks. You are going to face gatekeepers, people saying this is the way it is and this is the type of stuff we accept and this is how you should write. And any any good storyteller would tell you that you just keep doing what you're doing, right? And and hoping that folks are learning from it or, and, and a lot of times you're learning from it. And that's the other thing people tend to forget. You know, every time you write something, you learn from it. Every time you study something, you learn from it. And it, it makes you better at what you do, I think as well. And it also helps you distinguish, maybe I don't want to put a hundred hours of work into that particular story. Maybe I want to focus on this story. I want to bring out that narrative of this beautiful cultural piece. You know, I've done the the more uh, dismal stuff. I've, I've dealt with the, the demographic change and shifts and stuff like that. And so I feel like in my more recent years, I've wanted to focus on the more positive stuff and bring bring that to light because, you know, they'll they'll always be both right. We're in, in life. There'll be difficult times and there'll be 
more peaceful, beneficial times. And so I think as I've gotten older, I definitely know I want to focus more on sort of those elements of, of that I find to be quite beautiful, uh, at least in my academic work of Assyrians, to find those pieces that are that elicit that sense of, of wonder and joy and beauty and bring that out to the rest of the world as much as, as I am able to. Yeah, we definitely need more of that. So we look forward to future work. But I wanted to briefly touch on your book that you wrote, The Reforging of Forgotten History, Iraq and the Assyrians in the 20th Century. What I loved about this book is that it is accessible, not just in terms of from the price point, but that it wasn't something that was just in the academic realm and could not be accessed. It's widely accessible and it's the the first comprehensive kind of account to contextualize the Assyrian experience primarily in, in Iraq, but using primary and secondary sources. So I, it's it's very special in that sense. What inspired you to write the book? So the book is in many ways a connection. I mean, it's it's a further development of my thesis, of my dissertation. Uh, it, I, you know, a lot of folks turn their dissertations into their first book, their, their first uh, monograph. But I will say that I, I, and I think a lot of folks go through shifts and changes, and some are pretty significant. Mine definitely went through a lot of changes, very significant changes by the time it became a book. But I was inspired to turn it into a fully published work because of, mostly because of a lot of the folks that I had been interviewing, and a lot of them simply wanted their story to get out there. You know, and you can you can connect, you can get online and connect to the IMDB database and, and download the dissertation. I think uh, after, I think it's after a couple of years, you can download it for free. If I remember how the, the process works, but that's one way. I mean, I wanted to see if I could get it out there for a much larger audience. And uh, it, I mean, of course, having a book also helps you academically in your career. So that's very important to actually have a published piece of published material. But, you know, the book simply in my mind had to get out there because I, I remember getting phone calls from, and that's why I wrote the, the foreword that I wrote in the text from uh, one of the, one of my interviewees who called me. I still remember the day that, that he called me while I was in the Department of Near Middle Eastern Studies, you know, in Fort Bancroft Hall. I remember standing there and a, the phone ringing and <laughs> Jenny the administrative assistant at the time picked up the phone and said, it's a phone call for you. And I thought, phone call for me? Who's calling for me, you know, at the main desk? And here's this man who's who I had interviewed and had, was asking me basically, so what's going on? How's the book or how's the story coming? How's, um, you know, how's this going on? How, how's it happening? What's happening? What's going to happen with it? When will it come out? And I realized that I had to tell that story. I had to tell the the story that he wanted to to get out to the rest of the world because he knew that if it didn't, people wouldn't know about it. And so, uh, a lot of times, I think people forget that. I mean, it's in any kind of literature, any kind of writing, you're sort of practicing an art form. So, in any kind of art, what you're doing is having an expression, and you're expressing something that's important. And so, I think what I was trying to do was express. The, the emotions, the experiences of all these people and, and, and what that meant to them, you know, what this demographic loss meant to them, what, what the loss of their homes meant, what the loss of their way of life meant to them. And I think it was meaningful so that they understood. And, and 
and they they did certainly I mean, they understood from their own perspective but that that they saw that others were seeing them as you had said right to feel seen and heard for the first time yes okay oh interesting this happened i had never never known this mm-hmm. so those types of responses i think were helpful for a lot of folks to i don't know i mean it's writing it was a little bit cathartic and so my assumption is if your story is there then maybe there's a bit of catharsis in that as well just so that you know your experience is being told to a wider audience because it gives it, it i think it gives it that sense of, of visibility as as you were mentioning earlier i think that's very important to to have that sense of visibility so yeah that was that was why really i thought it was a necessity that that come out in a in a book form it's you know of course there's a big part of me that always thinks but nowadays if it's not on youtube how many people are actually going to read it mm. so <laughs> i do hope that and i use it frequently in my classes you know i i'll assign it i'll i teach courses on assyrian history at my university so i will assign it as a required reading for for my students and it's great because i you know knowing it inside and out in many ways is wonderful and every once in a while the best part is, is students will sit back and say you know how you said this on page so and so or what you know 52 and i go wow i said that i don't remember saying that <laughs> was it good? and then i have to reread it and say oh that was quite well done or oh yeah. wow geez did i say that oh i wish i had shifted that a bit so yeah. you know you always have these reactions from from folks so that's it's nice to have that i think we'll link it in the episode notes but i always recommend this book to anybody who is looking at and it's primarily within our community but wants one book where they can get a general idea of our history that can span over the kind of modern times and so I find this to be easy to read and that's why I recommend it to so many people because yeah you're not using like a ton of uh, fancy academic jargon that you know can easily disconnect a reader so yeah we'll definitely uh, link that in the show notes I think if if you get past those yeah. first was it the introduction in the first chapter that have more of the philosophical stuff in them right um if you're dealing with like pen and historicism and you know uh this general sense of um subordinating narrativization that i bring up in the text yeah those i mean those terms were uh, in a lot of senses i i mean i created those terms because i couldn't figure a term that worked mm. um and i borrowed from different fields and different ideas but yeah once you get through that you know a lot of the text is it was meant to be a, a narrative of what was happening at the time and and how the Assyrian community dealt with their situation uh how they responded to it and then of course to just you know that last segment which is really the, the appendices are quite large and the reason for that was that i thought that i was asked should we take it out because if you take it out it makes the book smaller it's more even more accessible people aren't going to read you know 120 pages of appendices but all of that village data i felt was so important because it shows the demographic shift you know a lot of times people say well there aren't any Assyrians there now or you know in this a particular area of the middle east and i say yeah but here they were there they were there and you know forgetting that they were there it's kind of you know i always link it to my work in animal studies and anthropology okay well there are no there are no more you know wolves in the eastern seaboard of the united states and i always think yeah there aren't any now but they were the most widespread mammal after man for for thousands of years and and in fact actually we probably need more apex predators like wolves i mean not in 
not probably we we do we you know part of the reason we have a lot of the issues we do in the environment in this area is that we don't have that and so um you know trying to what i realized was that linking this you know it's sort of connected to so many different things for me in that having a better understanding of the situation and having having evidence for just because at this moment it's not there doesn't mean that it wasn't important or that it should still be important right um you know we we talk about in, in the in anthrozoology there's a lot of discussion of reintroduction of uh, different species and different habitats and stuff like that you know and and similarly humans do that right we move we go from place to place we make different homes for ourselves so um it's not that assyrians you know they may not be there right now but they were there for quite some time um and perhaps they in some of those places they will be back soon uh you know we know in places like torabdin many people have gone back and rebuilt houses and in um in other places in um in in Ormia and and in uh, less so in Ormia, but some places in northern Iraq, some places in Syria and Qamishli, um, you know, there were these movements to go back and to build and to 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 remain or at least to have some sort of a presence there. Um, and a lot of that, I mean, a lot of that was sort of, a lot of that shifted during the period of of, of Daesh of, of ISIS. But again, the I think the idea in my mind is just because it it. They're not there now, sort of for most people out of sight, out of mind. But the reality is, is that no, this is historically part of their home and, and it always has, it always had been and it always will be in a sense. So regardless of where they are, they still look to that place as their home. Um, yeah. And it's important to understand why that's so meaningful to them. Even if you don't, whatever reason, you don't agree with it, you don't like it, you don't think people should go back, you think people should go, whatever the issue is, whether you are or are not Assyrian, it doesn't matter. I think the piece that matters here is that if it is of significance to someone, then it is of significance to someone and therefore it is important. It is sacred. And so in that sense, I think it's very important. At some point you decided to add on to your, your academic work and decided to go back to school for anthrozoology. Could you talk us through how you decided to do that? What sparked your interest in that? So, so Odessa, this is the best part for me is this when everyone, I don't know why this is sort of the, I think this is the way I do things in life. Apparently I, I didn't really, I hadn't thought about it, but as I'm reflecting now, it's interesting to reflect. So I was called to be a character witness in a, a case where there was a, uh, an altercation between two dogs. And one of the dogs died from the wounds that, that it had uh, incurred from this other dog. And I had worked with the dog that was still alive. And I was called by the, the defense because it went to like sort of a trial, essentially. <laughs> I was called to be a character witness for the dog. Now, what was interesting, because I worked with the dog for uh, quite some time. And what, was and what interesting, do you mean by worked with the dog? So I volunteer uh, in animal shelters and in, in uh, sanctuaries So and had been doing that work for a while. And I worked with the dog and there was a, I mean, it seemed like the question was whether or not they would euthanize this dog as well, right? Because the other dog died. And so this dog, I think the idea was that this other dog was a threat, as I understood it, that people wanted to say this dog was a threat. And so they, this dog should also be put down. And of course, 
I didn't feel that. And I was called to be this character witness. And it was interesting when I got called, I'd never been in a, a case like that, right? So I called onto, here I am, I walk in and I'm called up to, to the stand and the prosecutor's lawyer, the, the prosecutor, excuse me, the lawyer for the, for the folks who brought the case starts asking me questions and, and says, so, so you have a PhD? And I said, yeah. What's your PhD? Your PhD, your doctor, right? And I said, yeah. What's your PhD in? And I said, he said, it's history, right? And I said, well, actually it's near and Middle Eastern civilizations, <laughs> trying to be a little bit facetious to respond to yeah. where I knew he was going with this. I said, so, so, but, but, but you work, in, you teach history. And I said, yeah. And he says, so, uh, but you don't have a degree in, in anything animals, right? You don't like, you're not a vet. You don't have any, you know, degree in animal stuff. And I said, no. So, so really just, you know, it's just, I said, well, I, I have, you know, seven, eight years of experience volunteering, working with dogs, cats, and other animals, in particular, those, those companion animals. But you don't have any degree, right? You're, you're not an expert. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't have a degree. And, and I felt so kicked into a corner and, and frustrated because, I mean, I didn't understand, I still don't understand how the legal profession works. And I didn't realize that's what was going to happen. And I was frustrated because I, I knew, and I, I had to trust in the process because, you know, the, the sort of the defense attorney then uh, asked me questions and it, it worked out well in, in a sense, but the, at the time I was just very frustrated and I, I, I had always wanted to do something that I would work with animals. And when I was a kid, I remember going to a local zoo here and saying, oh my God, I can get a job at a zoo. And so I went in and I said, I'd like to volunteer, to do a volunteer job at the zoo, cleaning, taking care of, holding animals. I don't care. Can I hold a, a hawk? Can I play with the lions? You know, I just wanted to be with the animals. And I remember being, you know, this was even before this case. Um, I remember being asked, you know, okay, so we just have to ask this because it's a question we ask everybody. How do you feel when you see the animals in cages? Do you feel like you want to let them out? And I sort of sat back and I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's wrong to keep them in cages. And, uh, and he said, uh, the person interviewing me said, yeah, I, I, that's, and it's fine. You know, we all many, most of us feel that way and we don't like it, but you know, animal, these animals are ambassadors for their species. And of course, part of my, part of the, again, facetious part of my brain goes, yeah, you know what ambassadors get? <laughs> they get lots of money, awesome perks. They travel around the world. They get diplomatic immunity. I don't know about that for these animals. You know, that doesn't seem like it's quite the same benefits. And so, so that's like how I had always been, you know, I just always loved non-human animals and saw this deep connection. I mean, there's a reason that humans, almost all the early childhood stuff that you read as a kid is animal oriented. You know, kids are so connected to animals and anthropomorphizing animals and, and making humans animals and animals humans and, and because they're deeply connected to a larger web of life. And um, to go back to the, the issue of this guy asking these questions, I mean, I having that idea and loving it and, and being close to this dog was wonderful, but I realized that if I was ever in that situation again and I didn't have a degree, I might you know, be badgered again. And how would I, how do, should I stop that from happening? And so I looked around and I found these really cool degrees in anthrozoology, animal studies. And I found a, a degree that was offered a master's of science that was offered through Canisius College in Buffalo, New York. 
And it was a fairly new program in anthrozoology animal studies. And it was headed by, oh, at the time one, uh, I don't remember who's heading it at the time, but I remember when I got the call, when I, I just thought I would apply and I applied and I got the call saying, from one of the professors saying, you know, are you really interested in coming? And it was Paul Waldau. And Paul has since become a, a friend and a, and a colleague. And at the time, you know, Paul called and said, so we'd love to have you. And I thought, what I have, what will I have to give to this program? You know, there's probably a lot of younger folks that want to be in this program. I don't really need to be there, but I really want to. I want to meet other people that think the way I do and believe that love animals the way I do and, and don't make these big distinctions. And so, you know, the first year he, he said, you know, we'd love to have you. I said, you know, maybe I'll wait a year. It was, it was a busy time. And I, I think maybe my, my daughter was either just about, maybe she was born at the time or just about to be born. And so I, I said, maybe next year. And then I waited a year and then they called me back again the next year and said, hey, it's still, the place is still there for you. Do you want it? And, and I had, at that point, I had had other conversations with Paul and, and I said, absolutely. And so I took it. And for four years, I worked on this while I was teaching and, you know, the kids and stuff like that. And then I finally finished it in 2019, 2020. I'm actually even forgetting because these last couple of years have been a big I blur. <laughs> I don't remember when I finished my degree, but I finished it. And I think it was 2019 when things were had some semblance of normalcy, whatever normalcy was back then. And I was, was wonderful because I met some of the most wonderful people I've ever met in my life. People of such wonderful character and compassion and kindness, Paul being one of them and, and the other professors that were in the program, all of them wonderful human beings, wonderful people. And all of my, all of my peers, everybody in that program was just, was just fantastic. And so I had this wonderful opportunity to do that. And majority of it was online. So you'd go for one week at the beginning of every semester and do coursework in person. You'd meet your, the cadre that you were with, you'd meet your professor, you'd get to know them was really wonderful to do that. And so I get to do that. And then, you know, you go back. And so it was, it was good for me while I was teaching and had all these other duties that I could take these courses online and do this one week where I, I you know, the one week at the beginning of the semester. And so after four years, um, even before I got the degree, I started teaching. I did a couple experimental courses in animal studies at my university at Roger Williams. And uh, I'm teaching another one right now, actually. And, and they, they've worked out well so far. I mean, they're all experimental in the sense that we're just trying to get more and more traction with students, but it's really about interconnectivity. It's really about interdependence and showing folks just how much more connected we are to a larger, to, to life in and of itself. Just there's so many different pieces and it is beautiful and wonderful. And it's also very important, I think for me, even when I get frustrated and in the midst of all this stuff that's been happening this past couple of years to remember that it's bigger there aren't always those simple answers, but it's beautiful and it's wonderful at the same time. And nowadays, actually, there are some wonderful programs out there. There's another young Assyrian woman, Tiamat Warda, who's studying at Exeter, and she's actually doing her PhD in animal studies. So there, there are people around the world that are studying this. And, and I think, you know, if what we're starting to realize is that the world is far more, <laughs> again, as I said, I'm going to use that term a thousand times, interconnected than we thought or we should have realized, it's important for us to understand that, right? I mean, just think about COVID-19 and how viruses pass and everything that we know about human and animal interactions and destruction of habitat and all of that. It's so important right now that we we focus on those things. And, and as I've done in the past, I mean, there are a lot of similarities between 
the loss and the endangerment of, of species and, and, and human cultures and communities. So I think there's a lot of parallels that can be talked about there. Yeah, that's what I found really interesting when I had uh, listened to the podcast episode that you had done with Shifting Lens, which is on SoundCloud. We'll we'll link it in the show notes as well. But the intersection between Assyrian Assyrians, but Assyrian studies and and anthrozoology had me thinking about the way that yeah, the Assyrian situation is and how different animals are going through the same exact thing that we are. It's just something that we're not we don't look at in the grand scheme of things and don't sometimes don't pay attention that humans aren't the only ones that are going through these experiences. And I, I love the way that you were able to tie, and maybe you can touch on it briefly, but how somebody who may not be so involved with animals, you know, or into animals can still see the the connection there and being able to empathize with other species because we deal with the same exact thing that they do. Yeah. And it's, you know, Odessa, that's a great point. And I thank you so much for saying that because it really makes me happy to hear that. It's, it's strange to me that we don't see it at times. As I said, I, it's very difficult to me as I, I look around my room right now, my cats aren't with me and, you know, they're always just a constant sense of uh, joy and wonder in my life uh, and the, the life of my entire family. And they always have been. And if you've grown up with, with, uh, you know, non-human animals in your house as companion animals, then you're connected to that. And, and for most people, actually, that's sort of the gate. That's the, that's the door in for a lot of people. You know, I always ask, I ask my students, have you ever had, do you, does anyone here have an animal in, in their house? Does anyone have a pet, right? And so once people say, I have a pet, and I say, so you have an animal companion at home, and how do you feel, right? And people will say, oh, my dog is like this, and my dog knows everything, and my dog is deeply connected and understands when we feel this, and, or my cat feels this, or my horse feels that. And once you, you have people recognize that and become aware of what they've always known to be true, right? That animals feel and they, and they have these emotions and these inner lives and these external lives, and they're deeply connected to each other and to us and to everything around them, just as we are, then you start to realize, wait a minute, why do we do what we do? You know, why do we dismiss them? Why, you know, and we interact with animals every day. If you eat, you're probably interacting with another life form, right? And yes, even if you're a vegan, you're still probably eating something that, you know, uh, and it took uh, Peter Volobin to write the, the hidden life of, or the secret life of trees for people to go, oh my God, you know, there are these, there, they speak to each other through their root system. There are these impulses, the, this electromagnetic response to things. And all of a sudden people just took a step back and said, wait a minute, is it strange that when you sing to your plant and you your plant tends to grow healthier and stronger? Think about that for a second. You know, people do it and then they don't, they think, ah, whatever, you know. Mm. But if that's the case, then the reality is, is that we are deeply connected and the plants and the animals that we deal with on a regular basis are not as distinct as we thought that they were. And I think it's our modern culture that does that to us, right? It's our, it's our closed off culture where you live in a house or you live in a car. I mean, that's kind of how most of us live. We're either in a house or a car. And again, thanks to COVID-19, that's even more so the case these days, right? You're in a house or you're in a car. And it's the interactions that we're missing, right? Walking through a forest, walking through, walking through uh, decaying leaves, getting out there, running around with your dog, playing with your cat, riding a horse or taking care of your horse. However that works, 
people start to recognize it. And, and I think, again, for a lot of people, I think it's easier not to think about it because it's just one more thing to, to worry about or to concern yourself with. And it's easier just to say, I'm just going to eat a thousand buffalo fingers for, uh, for the Super Bowl and not worry about it. And I, I understand that. I mean, I do. There's a lot of stuff that if you don't worry about it, you don't think about it, it makes some stuff a lot easier. But I think we can be aware of things, but also be respectful of them. And that's, I think, one thing that a lot of indigenous cultures have just been wonderful about. And I'm not romanticizing. I know a lot of people will say this is romanticizing. It's not romanticizing because we know that most indigenous cultures, especially if you want to just take indigenous North America, the sense of connection to everyday life, like to animals and to plants, because your, your life is based on them and you understand that. Your life is not based on your 401k, right? Two, 300 years ago or 400 years ago, when life was based on your immediate surroundings and your food that you grew or the animals that you ate, if you ate those animals or how you hunted, all of that was a, a constant connected circle. And so when you're living that, it's important and you recognize it and you're part of it. When you stop living in that and you go to a supermarket and you pick out something that doesn't look like a chicken and you're like, oh, I'm going to get chicken and you pick out and you get the chicken or the beef and you bring it back to the house and you cook it. Yeah, it's 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 almost as if it was never there. It was never real. And I think even in Western contexts, so not even in indigenous context, but even in sort of a Western, modern Western American or Canadian context or Mexican context, that idea of small farms and people that grow up with the cattle or the chickens that they raise, there's definitely much more of a connection. People that are, you know, that you're in there with your, your hands and your, your livelihood is dependent on these creatures. You start to think a little bit differently. I think for a lot of people, that connection is so important, you know, and the rest of us, again, if you're disconnected from it, it doesn't mean as much. I think for a lot of folks, it can, it can mean a lot for people. But I think for a lot of folks, it's sort of, again, it's out of sight, out of mind. And I think that's why bringing these stories, these stories, making them visible, right? Telling a story about, I have this great piece that I put up on my wall outside of my, my office. It's right next to the one that says, do not walk. One does not simply walk into Mordor. And it's just a picture of a person walking and like a big line through it. And then on the other side, it says, you shall not pass. But it's, sorry, it's my my Lord of the Rings humor, which I'm a huge fantasy fan. So. If you, if you sort of, if you just look at the story and there's a great story that I found a few years back about a wolf and a bear that someone had followed who had become, I mean, they're natural competitors for the same food and yet they become best of friends. It's, you know, these types of stories, I think that are important. You know, somebody rescues a baby raven, that raven flies off and then like three years later comes and lands on that person's shoulder. That, I don't know, as again, as a child, I was always connected to that. As I got older, I was still connected to it, although I think I sort of pushed it away a bit. And I think as I get older, I realize how important that is. And so I think, again, it, it, a lot of it just goes back to connection, right? I think we, 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 are, we thrive on connection. We, we need connection. Richard, uh, I'll just connect it to even things in, in sort of, theo not theology, but if you think about uh, religious studies, I, I read, this wonderful daily meditations by Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan. And he writes a lot about these sort of ideas of, again, interconnectivity, oneness, the idea of oneness. And 
in in some of the stories and some of the the writings of Richard Rohr, he's mentioned this frequently about you know that deep connection to the incarnation of of the spirit, right? The that if all of this is incarnation, if all of life is sort of incarnated and has a touch of the divine, then how wonderful and beautiful is that? I think that's that's very important. I mean, it's always been an important thing for me. It, it's moving to me, and I, as I said, as I think as I get older. It's a thing that I need to remember more often and connect to more often. So, but it's quite beautiful, and and I and I think that I think that people will resonate with it if they sort of just give themselves time to think about it, or just to sort of sit with it. I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I th- I think for those that are interested in learning more about this, listening to that episode on uh, on SoundCloud from the Shifting Lens will definitely be an eye opener. I definitely want to talk about, you know, we're gearing towards the latter part of the interview, just, you know, you're a part of the board of directors for the Assyrian Studies Association. It has, the Assyrian Studies Association has now been in formation for at least a, a few years. We had been sort of working on it for a long time and thinking about it and why it was important that we create a, an academic association for people who were interested in Assyrian studies to find a place where they felt comfortable discussing these issues where they could come with a variety of ideas and thoughts and backgrounds. They could come from different fields and participate in a conversation, in a, in a very open conversation where you could have a particular opinion on the importance of Assyrian culture and history and language and et cetera, et cetera. And you could find a space where that resonated with people and that folks could help you and and you could help them. And I think that was the big thing for us was really to create space. I mean, so much of, I find for, for a lot of things in life, especially in the academic world, sometimes just creating space for something is very important and allowing for that space to exist allows for people to participate in it, right? To enter that space and to find a sense of belonging there, a sense of home there. And I think for a lot of scholars who come from different fields that didn't have that sense of how did how do you do Assyrian stuff in this or in that? How do you, you know, if I'm in political science, how do I do Assyrian studies? If I'm in history, how does that work? If I'm in economics, how does that work? If I'm in anthropology, ethnomusicology, law. And so Dr. Helen Melko and myself spoke with some folks at the Assyrian Foundation of America. And the Assyrian Foundation of America is a wonderful organization that's been around for decades in uh, Northern California and in the Bay Area. And at the time we had spoken with a good friend of mine, Dr. Robert Karukian. And Robert and I had been having these conversations for a long time. Robert's an anesthesiologist, but in fact actually is probably a far better Assyrian studies scholar than I could ever be just absolutely brilliant with history and culture and language of Assyrians. And so uh, I've known Robert for many years. He's one of the people who's always had such a wonderful, positive impact on my life as an Assyrian. And we had talked about this and said, you know, if if this doesn't get started, it, it may never, you know, if someone doesn't actually start working on this, is it is it going to happen? And someone actually kind of has to do it. And he had suggested that the uh, AFA has people who will support in the sense that the organization was very supportive of this idea 
but they didn't they simply didn't have the people to run it mm-hmm. and so when when robert and i and and um and helen spoke about this we we said okay let's see what we can do let's try to drop some like a bylaw and um a constitution for this organization and see if we can find people who are interested and and we knew many scholars wanted to have a connection to a larger scholarly community of Assyrians. They just simply just didn't know how to do that. And, you know, there have been associations that existed before. The Assyrian Academic Association in Chicago had existed before. There was, I think still is, an Assyrian Australian Academic Association or society. There are sort of smaller ones that exist in other places, but as a as a purely you know, academic organization, it, we didn't really have that sense of it. And I say that because even the, the Assyrian Academic Society was largely created and run by people who already had a lot of work to do. They had full-time jobs and they weren't in necessarily, a lot of them were not in the academic world, but they had this love and connection to Assyrian culture and history and art and architecture and everything and simply wanted to make it more visible. They wanted to offer a space for people to participate in it. And that's what they did. And so for years, they did a wonderful job. But I think the big or the two problems were that as many things occur, the associations in the Assyrian community became very polarized. You know, there was an issue of of trying to get enough people to work in the associations. And that was difficult. A lot of times when you have people that are in academics and that are studying in their master's or PhD, they don't, sometimes they don't have time for that. And so they worry about spreading themselves too thin in that sense. But then again, you also need a connection to funders. And so that was a big piece of all of this as well. And so I think what ended up happening was that sort of in, in a sense, a natural course occurred where once there was a little bit more of a critical mass in the academic world, a few folks could come together and say, okay, we're established in these different places. Now we can create something. We are, you know, there's folks that are in X university or Y university or, or another university elsewhere. And so we can sort of come together and, and give it that academic sense and, and flavor because we're in these places of, of higher learning. And so you can also tap into things that a lot of folks in those earlier renditions, in a sense, whether that have been in Australia or in Chicago or elsewhere, that was very difficult to do, right? It's tough to do that when you're not in that position, when you're not at the university. It's tough to do at the universities even today, even if you are in those positions, but at least there's a little bit more of a connection. And I think the important thing is, is, is even for academics to remind themselves even today that, and for non-academics, that it takes all, right? It takes everybody to sort of make this thing work. So while it is an academic association in the sense that it's focused on academia, it is working on Assyrian culture and history and music and art and all of these things. And so if you are interested in that, there are 150 different ways to help and to participate. And I always say to myself that, you know, the it's really the longevity of these associations that we hope to, to set the framework for. Because if it continues for a dozen, two dozen, 50 years, that's really what you'd like to see, that it's an active, positive, it is an active force and a positive force for Assyrian studies in the world so that people have a place to go and to talk and to come up with ideas and to bounce ideas off each other where they feel like they can do that without maybe being confronted by sort of a sense uh, or a, a wall or a bulwark against them, which does happen again in the academic world, right? Because you, you, you 
connect yourself sometimes and you feel like there might be a space and then you encounter gatekeepers. And that's typical in a lot of fields. But this was hoping to, to avoid a lot of that. And so when we established in, in 2019, we created a board. It's an international board. We have a both an advisory board and a board of directors. Alexandra Lazar is the executive director and she's also currently a PhD student. So we're really trying to help folks in a variety of places and connect folks in a variety of places. A lot of, we've had a lot of PhD students give presentations for us. We've had full professors in universities and, you know, folks that have sort of these terminal degrees in these different fields, whatever that field may be, to have a sense of a camaraderie that they can get. And, and especially if they're, of course, if they're interested in Assyrian studies. So whatever that field may be, if there's some link to Assyrians or they'd like to pursue a link towards to Assyrians, then this is the place to do it. That's really the the hope. Uh, that was the hope in creating it. And I think so far we've done a good job and, and I'm very proud of it. Uh, you know, I'm always looking forward to kind of handing off the position. And I think that's essentially what we're setting up for is that is this constant turnover, but in a positive way for the next group of scholars to come in and take over. We're certainly always looking for support and aid in any way from folks in a variety of different places. Always love to have folks to give presentations. We had planned a wonderful, I, I felt that it was one of the best symposia I had ever worked on. And we, we had a great great lineup that we were going to have in March of 2020 at Florida International University, which is where Professor Hannibal Travis works. And then of course, COVID happened and we had to cancel. So that was unfortunate, but we've made do, I think the past few years. And, and that's of course been the big thing is that all this has been done during COVID. So it's been very difficult to do that, but you know, we've had uh, wonderful webinars, you know, Alexander as the executive director has done a wonderful job in keeping folks prize of the situation of what we've been doing, uh, connected to things. So that's been great. We hope to expand in the future. As I said, we're always looking for new ideas. We have a couple of grants that we also offer for folks writing materials in particular uh, books on Assyrians, but also major research projects. So uh, look out for those. Those are very important. We offer those once a year. We're very proud of that. And we still have a very good working relationship and, and, and I trust and I hope that we always will with the Assyrian Foundation of America, which is just a lovely, wonderful organization that has done so much good and, and aided so many Assyrians, both academically, including myself, but also folks from the perspective of folks in disaster areas and Assyrians in particular countries who need aid and support, building projects, et cetera. So We've been very lucky that we have had that organization for so many years and, and they keep doing wonderful work. So in a sense, the Assyrian Studies Association was also very much and still is very much viable thanks to the support of AFA. And for listeners who are interested in learning more, it's AssyrianStudiesAssociation.org, the website. And I recommend signing up for the email list so that you can get emails on any upcoming webinars that they have, which up to date have been amazing. And I love the grant component of it because I think it then contributes to the essence of what I'd imagine an academic association would want to encourage is further encouraging people to pursue what it is that they are passionate about pursuing as it pertains to Assyrians. So Dessa, thank you for saying that. I, I, and I just want to encourage folks because I think that's a, it's a very important piece. And one of our board of directors had mentioned this, Mark Tomas 
uh, has had this really wonderful idea, and, and you guys will read about this uh, production, I think, soon. But the idea is one of the major pieces, I think, of, of any organization, any association in the academic world, in particular, something that's connected to Assyrians, and in particular, something that hopes to preserve Assyrian culture and history and language and is interested in that. Preservation is wonderful, but it's also important to engage also to help this continue in a sense, right? Not simply just to hold it and keep it stagnant, but to feed it and help it to grow in that sense. And a large piece of this is the idea of cultural production. And so cultural production comes in a variety of ways. It's not simply academic articles. You know, if you look around at how cultural production works in, in any human community, you realize that there are some wonderful stories, there are wonderful art pieces, there are wonderful songs and, and, and musical numbers that are written. And all of this, dances, et cetera, I mean, all of this is connected. And so if you, if you participate, I think, uh, in these organizations, offer, again, that space for cultural production in a variety of ways and modes, then people can participate in that. And it allows for the culture to thrive, not just simply to to survive and stay stagnant, as I said, but to thrive. And I think that's really, you know, that's a big component of it for me, you know, from the academic perspective, the pursuit of Assyrian studies and the interest in the intellectual pursuit is wonderful, but also as a person who wants to make a difference as, as I think all of us do uh, a positive difference then then allowing for people and cultures and that element of positive cultural production to be there allows for the culture to thrive. And, and if the culture thrives, hopefully, you know, we're assuming also that, you know, people themselves are, are thriving within that. So that is a major piece for all of us, I think. Um, certainly it is for me and I think for others as well. Totally. The last question that we ask is that we have listeners from all over the world. What is one thing that you would like to tell them? <laughs> well, I, I, I would like to tell everyone I've I wish and I hope that you're all well during these very difficult times. And even if these times weren't these times, I would still hope and sell, send all my best wishes to you and your families. Be good, do good, and do the best you can in whatever pursuit that you have and that makes you happy and gives you hope. And recognize that there are so many pieces of what makes us who we are and ways that you can garner such strength and support from those around you to tackle some of these very, very difficult pursuits in life, like the academic pursuit. And sometimes when you feel at a place of frustration or in a place of frustration and come up against a lot of walls, I think, especially when you're working the, within the academic study of Assyrians, certainly, but in, in a lot of different places with Assyrian work, I find that we do the best we can. And, um, and I think it's a, it's a shared it's a shared pursuit, right? None of it falls on the shoulders of one person or one being, but uh, we're, we're larger than that. And I think that's probably my animal studies, uh, you know, the piece of me that's connected to mythology and, and animals that understands that, that, that sort of innately knows it, although sometimes my brain doesn't actually recognize that. But that innate sense of, of who we are and the deeper connection that we have. And I wish you all well, and uh, thank you for listening. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and let three loved ones know about the Assyrian podcast. 
I hope you enjoy the episode. See you next week.